You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Doc G, and today we're going to discuss why maybe, just maybe, you shouldn't earn and invest in your job. I should have known there was a problem from the beginning, but I was a 16-year-old and she was really cute. So when we started dating and in the first week, she convinced me to get in her little white Jetta and go on Lakeshore Drive and she drove 115, 120 miles an hour and got a ticket. I didn't really think much of it. And then the week later, when she convinced me to park in the towway zone so that we could go get coffee and came back and my car was gone, we had to go pick it up, but eventually realized that there was transmission damage done from the towing. Ended up costing me thousands of dollars. I had to work all that summer at an ice cream store to make up for that damaged car. And then very shortly thereafter, she left me. She got interested in one of my friends. We were 16, and my friend was certainly much cooler than I. And it burned. It felt bad. And even now, looking back, she really wasn't that cool. And I later met other women and got married and am quite happy. But there's something about when someone leaves you. And it made me realize that we all get dumped at some point. Maybe it's a spurned lover. Maybe you are abandoned by a friend. Or maybe, just maybe, you get fired from a job that had become part of your identity. Piggy is one of the titular bitches on the Bitches Get Riches podcast and blog. Her fierce intelligence and irreverent humor have created a rabidly loyal community, including yours truly. Piggy, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Doc. It is great to have you on again. I'm going to do something a little funny, which I like to do when you're on the show. I want to read <laughs> you some song lyrics, and I just want you to tell me if this, this sounds familiar. And of mm-hmm. course, I'm going to be reading this, these song lyrics, so it's going to be really silly. <laughs> but here we go anyway. And I'm here to remind you of the mess you left when you went away. It's not fair to deny me of the cross I bear that you gave to me. You, you, you ought to know. Does that sound familiar? It sure does. When I, uh, when I lost my job, I am a musician and I play a lot of open mics, or I did before the, the plague times, but I really needed to process 
my emotions through my music and I played a lot of angry breakup songs, including Alanis Morissette's You Oughta Know, which is a classic. So yeah, that's, I was singing that a lot after losing my job. It really is a classic. And and part of the reason I did the introduction I did and talked about being dumped myself is there really seems to be this connection, especially for you in losing this job and almost feeling dumped as if you had lost a boyfriend or a spouse. Oh, I totally felt dumped. It was awful. And, you know, you, the comparisons are, are just rife there you know like the the conversation oh it's not you it's me (laughs) and like comparing that with like my situation with my boss and the HR representative who was like how are you feeling I want to make sure you're emotionally okay and I was just like motherfucker I just want to get out of here and like go have a drink so yeah it was it was absolutely like breaking up with my work getting dumped and I I kind of I mean I guess it was a little comforting that there wasn't another woman you know, they weren't, (laughs) I was laid off. So it wasn't like they were hiring someone to replace me or anything, but it was, yeah, it was really painful. I I felt pretty abandoned and shocked. And not only that, but then they asked you to stick around for a week and clean up the mess, right? Oh Lord. Yes. It was like your, your ex being like, oh, but can you still come to my, my nephew's bar mitzvah with me (laughs) like a week from now? Can you still be my date to somebody's wedding? It was, oh, it was rough. Yeah. I mean, who does that? Right. And I get that, you know, the circumstances under which I was laid off, you know, they were, there was a lot of work to be done. There was a lot of catch up. So like they really couldn't spare me until I'd sort of wrapped up a couple of projects and really passed things off to the people who would be remaining. But like, damn, what a week. I just, the whole time I was like, you know, I don't have to do this. I could just stop, but I'm a nice person, sort of. So, (laughs) so yeah, I stuck around that whole week just instead of ripping off the Band-Aid, which it it just kind of rubbed salt in the wound. So I love having you on as well as your co-host, Kitty, because I spend the whole time laughing. And the truth (laughs) of the matter is, like, you are funny and use sarcasm. And the way you write, especially, there's this hard exterior. but this kind of hurt, right? I mean, there were tears. This wasn't just something you blew off. No, Doc. I am completely emotionless at all times. <laughs> I, I do not feel feelings. I hate them. I resist them with the fire of a thousand suns. No. Yeah, you're, you're right. Like, I do put up this front. And, I, and it's not just at Bitches Get Riches. It's not just, you know, in my online persona. Like, in person too like i like being the the funny sarcastic chick i like sort of you know letting stuff brush off and even you know in the meeting where i was laid off they wanted to really hold my hand metaphorically speaking <laughs> and sort of walk me through and just make sure i was okay and i was like you know what thank you for your consideration but this all makes sense to me why don't you just send me the paperwork and we'll go from there like i did not want to sort of show any emotion to them and let them see me upset in any way. Like I saved that for when I was, you know, home alone, listening to my breakup songs with a nice candle burning and just kind of weeping into my whiskey. But it's, I mean, I, I guess it was hard for me to accept at the time, but you really can be emotional and vulnerable and it doesn't mean you're any less tough. It doesn't mean you're any less professional. It, I guess it's, it's a matter of letting out your emotions on your own terms, you know? It's interesting you use the term this front is what you said when you're mm-hmm. talking about 
some of those other personality traits, but I kind of agree with you. Like they can be there together. And Mm -hmm. what was really refreshing about hearing you talk about this on the blog was that you could be both funny, witty, tough, and vulnerable, and that they didn't cancel each other out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, gallows humor has always been a coping mechanism for me, for lots of people. You you can really kind of laugh through the tears a little bit. And again, that's why, you know, singing Alanis Morissette, just these classic, you know, 90s angry breakup songs really resonated for me because I could... I could let out my true emotions while also sort of laughing at myself, you know, and you, you kind of have, you do have to laugh at yourself. You can wallow in the self pity. You can, you know, wallow in the imposter syndrome and the feelings of inadequacy. But at, at the end of it, you have to be like, Oh my God, what a mess. Like, look at me, like just weeping into my pillow. Like, look how, how funny and pathetic this is. It's only a job. So the, that duality can exist and it it really should exist. I would say anyone who, has broken up with a job they they should they should not be afraid to let the emotions out and i like my my husband and my roommate were and and kitty my my co-host over at bitches get riches were all like super supportive and awesome and i kept being like all right guys i'm just going to spend the next 20 minutes like vocally processing things at you and then we're going to be done and we're going to like go do something awesome and they're like you you can have more than 20 minutes like, it's okay if you want to mope for a week and i was like no 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 all i need is 20 minutes and then i ended up needing you know many weeks <laughs> and i was about to say kitty kind of i believe outed you on the podcast but you got around to writing a blog post I lost my job and it might be the best worst thing that has ever happened to me. You didn't write that immediately. Like there's no, definitely a pause. Why yeah. do you think you needed that pause? Why didn't why why didn't it come out right away? Oh, that's such an interesting question. When the quarantine situation started here in the United States, we started writing an article a week about coronavirus and finances. And that was a great distraction from losing my job. But at the beginning of that, Kitty sort of started by saying like, look, we're only able to do this because Piggy just lost her job and she really needs this distraction and she's really throwing herself into the blog work. So I was really actually very grateful that she sort of ripped off the Band-Aid and said, and she had my permission, of course, but I, I was really grateful that she kind of took it out of, she, she, I let this cup pass from me to her and she was able to sort of say that. And the outpouring of support from our readers and our listeners was just really rather overwhelming. And again, like being the hard hearted bitch that I am with, you know, (laughs) a heart the size of a withered little raisin. I was very, I was very overwhelmed. I was like, what? I I can't handle this. But so it was out there and it kind of gave me the time and space I needed. Cause I I knew like we're, we're very accountable to our readers we're very much, we want to be transparent about our careers and, you know, big money things that happen to us. So I knew that this was a story that I would eventually have to tell on the blog and on the podcast. But having her kind of rip off that Band-Aid, like, let everyone know that, like, this is what I'm going through. I'm not ready to talk about it yet. So I actually, I worked on that article on and off for months, and like wrote little pieces here, pieces there. I rewrote stuff and, you know, my profession, I'm an editor. So I rarely sit down and whip off a first draft and then say, all right, it's done. It's brilliant. Let's send it out into the world. So it was very, it was very much, you know, my process 
to really work hard to to get it right and say the message that I wanted to. But it re- it really was like losing a job, losing a significant other. You go through the stages of grief, and I realized in the process of writing that I was going through the stages of grief. I was grieving my job and I was grieving my identity, which was very much wrapped up in my profession. So that's why it took so long to write. And again, I was just overwhelmed by the support and the messages and the kindness. And I was like, nah, stop making me feel nice, people of the internet. How, how dare you? Um, how, how dare you give me emotions? But yeah, that's, that's kind of why it took so long as I, I had to go through the stages of grief. And I, you can't rush those. You really can't. I want to jump to the identity piece in a minute. But before I do, you had mentioned accountability to your readers. Mm-hmm. Was there any feeling that maybe and somehow you had let them down? Was there any fear that you would be less to them than you were before this happened? A little bit. Yeah. Wow. You're, you're so intuitive, Doc. There's, you know, I write a blog about being successful in your career and your finances. I have positioned myself as an expert on these topics and to then be laid off to lose the job that I was so, you know, smug about getting in the first place. And I did write about getting this job, you know, two years ago and how happy I was about it. It, Oh man, it was a little bit like, well guys, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. You know, it was, it was that moment where, the kid realizes that their parent is fallible, you know? Um, not that parent. I am a delightful, quirky internet auntie slash big sister. <laughs> Just want to make that clear. No, but it, I, there was one, on one level, I was worried about disappointing them and appearing like a failure in their eyes. And on the other level, I realized I'm not the first person, nor will I be the last person to lose a job, you know? And I wanted to be accountable to our readers and be transparent about that because it was like, hey, if this can happen to me, it can happen to you. It can happen to anyone. It can happen whether you're great at your job or you're not, whether you know, you've know you done all the right things or you, you made a mistake. So I wanted to, I guess, humanize myself in the eyes of our readers a little bit and sort of let, let them in to that, that hard exterior and let them sort of see beyond that layer to, you know, the, the real human being who, who can get fucked over and who can fuck up. I think a lot about profession in general, because when I was struggling with my profession as a physician and realized that financially I could walk away from my employment, I really struggled with separating who I am as a person from what I do for a living. And you you mentioned a little bit identity already. Tell me about being a publisher. It really became part of who you are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, well, first of all, publishing is an incredibly competitive industry. You know, people try really hard to to get into it, and it can be really hard to get out of the entry level once you're you're even there. So getting your foot in the door is difficult. My entire education, my internships, my my early career, it was all geared towards getting into publishing. And I worked for a nonprofit publishing house for several years. And then I, I transferred to this large for-profit publisher. And it was kind of like, 
sweet. I've reached another level. Like I'm really, I'm a, I'm hot shit here. Like I've, I've got it all going on. You know, people wish they were me. I got the glamour. I got the prestige and I really got off on all that shit. On top of that, you know, it's the only profession I've ever had. All my friends know me as an editor. All of my family knows that like when they have a question about books or grammar or they just want a book recommendation, they know to come to me because I love it so much. I read a book a week in my personal life. My friend told her five-year-old the other day, she was like, you know what Jess does for a living? She's a professional reader. She gets to read books all day. Doesn't that sound fun? And I was like, hell yeah. So there's a lot wrapped up in it. It's not, you know, like being a CPA, nothing against CPAs, but like it, it's not just a job. It's a vocation, much like being a physician for you. So I had a lot going on there. And my my immediate reaction was, well, oh shit, if I'm not an editor at a large American publishing house, who the fuck am I? What What is my identity? What do I do? And having that ripped away without my choice was devastating. I, I was like, but 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 I'm an editor. What you you can't I can't not be an editor. So yeah, it was it was a real crisis of identity at first. And then of course, you know, I've always edited on the side. I've always freelanced in addition to my my day job because while being an incredibly glamorous and competitive industry, publishing is not particularly well paid. So like every other editor I know, like we all do shit on the side. We all have our own little side businesses. So I realized once I got over that initial shock and anxiety that like, oh, I am still an editor. I have my own business as a freelancer. So that helped a little bit, but it also, it took many, many weeks, months even of soul searching to be like, it's okay if I go do something else. It's okay if I stop defining myself by my profession and start, you know, doing something else that might not be as prestigious or might not be as tied in with my education, but is still fulfilling and more importantly, brings in then dollars. Yeah, there's a certain amount of cachet with certain professions, right? So you're at a party and someone says, what do you do for a living? When you say a doctor or an editor slash publicist, people kind of say, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. What do you tell people you do now when they ask you at a party? That's a great question. Well, fortunately, there's a plague on, so I haven't been attending any parties. <laughs> I, on Zoom, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On on Zoom, when people ask, so it's my my family asks a lot, which that's another thing too. Like I'm the granddaughter of Italian immigrants, and you know they they are very wrapped up in the pride of you know their granddaughter doing something that is intellectual and professional and and prestigious. So like, I don't want to disappoint them. And, you know, my parents who supported me for so long, I don't want to disappoint them. So they're all like very much like, oh, well, are you applying to other publishing houses? Are you getting interviews or whatever? And I just, I want to be like, I don't want to talk about this with you. You know, I don't want to disappoint you and, you know, tell you that I may be looking for a different profession. But to answer your question, I do still tell people I'm an editor because it's true. I was lucky enough that the day after my last day at my job, I started work on a freelance project that took all month. So my first month of unemployment, I was actually still working, you know, my nine to five, basically editing. 
So I, I do still tell people I'm an editor, maybe that'll change. Maybe I'm still processing and, you know, sort of entering this new stage. But I would love to eventually tell people, you know, my job is I advise young people on financial literacy on the internet. Yeah. Tell me about what happens to your confidence as a freelancer when you lose the corporate job. I mean, was there a part of you that was like, do I still have the chops to be a freelancer now that I'm not working for a well-known corporate agency who does this? Damn, Doc, way to twist the knife. <laughs> that's, that's my job. I'm just yeah. here twisting. Well done. I wasn't expecting the hard-hitting questions, Dan, rather. All right. <laughs> you know, it it has affected things a little bit because with scheduling, you know, and I, I freelance for both private authors and for other publishing houses. So in scheduling, I have been a little more upfront by being like, well, I am now a full-time freelancer and, you know, having to explain why that is, is a little bit of a blow. And most, most clients haven't really judged me on that or, you know, really sort of pride, but it, it has, kind of affected me a little bit because I'm just like, is, is freelancing as prestigious as working for a publishing house? I don't feel like it is. And that's just my feeling. That might not be the truth and definitely not, you know, making a dig on other freelancers, but it, it, it has kind of affected things a little bit. And I, I worry that the longer I just freelance instead of having a full-time job, the, the less my my full-time employed career matters or the, the less impact it has on my, my resume and my qualifications. So despite spending, you know, 12 years as a publishing professional at publishing houses, I do worry a little bit that, you know, this means I've lost my edge. As we talk, I certainly hear a part of your journey is questioning this job that you put a lot of time and effort and emotion into Looking back now, talk a little bit about the sacrifices. I mean, there seems from that blog post that there's some questioning of things you sacrificed to have this job, to be this profession. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, that's kind of the worst part about this, right? Is, you know, I learned a hard lesson about letting your job take over your personal life and sort of sacrificing work-life balance to keep that job. And, you know, we can talk openly about this. We're both sort of in the personal finance media sphere. I'm not, I'm not hurting for money. I am freakishly good with it. So despite not making a lot of it at my day job, you know, I've always had side hustles. I've always had my side business. I have the blog. So it's not like, I was desperate for money, but I was desperate to do a good job and to maintain that identity. And, and you know, I really, I put a lot of care into my work, largely because of that prestige that we already talked about and that sort of vocational aspect of it. So when it comes to sacrifices, you know, the, there was not it didn't happen all at once, but I found myself at first, you know, we, we were understaffed very suddenly. We lost like half our team overnight because of maternity leave and somebody took another job and whatever. So all of a sudden I went from having a pretty good work-life balance to keeping working after dinner and picking up a couple, you know, work items on the weekend and just like thinking about work as I was falling asleep and just sort of sacrificing my personal time and my lack of anxiety to work concerns 
because I was so worried about, you know, sort of letting people down, letting my company down, letting my authors down. So I, I really sort of started sacrificing personal time and my sort of my positive headspace, I guess you would say. But then sort of what really pushed me over the edge is, so my, my husband and I are big, we're, we're crunchy, tree huggery, outdoorsy types. And I, I, love, I love me an outdoor adventure. And in last fall, we got an invitation to raft the Grand Canyon. And if you're not familiar with that process, like if, if you're rafting it yourself with your own boats and everything, like you literally have to win the lottery. It, it's a lottery and people wait years to get a permit. So our friend had been waiting for 12 years to get a permit and he got one and he invited us to go on the trip. And it would be a three-week expedition. The dates were non-negotiable. We'd leave December 31st and come back three weeks later. And I've, of course, I was like, yeah, hell yeah, we're doing this. This is the chance of a lifetime. If I have to wait another 12 years to, to do this, like I'm, I'm doing this. You know, it's, it's the grand fucking canyon. It's doing it yourself without a guide. I mean, this was literally a dream come true. And I didn't have three weeks of vacation time saved up. And I figured, you know, I have to ask anyway, like who, who would deny, what employer would deny me this? Especially when like part of it was going to be over sort of the, the company being closed for the holidays. So, so I asked my boss, so I was just like, Hey, I have this incredible opportunity. What do you think? And he was like, Ooh, I don't know. You're, that's going to be a really hard ask to the higher ups. Cause you know, we are in this corporate structure with all this bureaucracy and you don't have the vacation time saved. And he was like, all right, so why don't you write a proposal? So I was like, sure. So I wrote this four-page proposal. And it's important to remember that I worked on a list of books. I worked on travel books. So, you know, a, an outdoor recreation expedition like this was within the scope of my work. So my proposal was basically, it was kind of twofold. One was like, you know, how I could make up the time if I had these three weeks off, you know, I was volunteering to work weekends for the next whatever to make up the time. And it was about how the expedition could benefit my work, you know, how I could get a book out of this or how I could do market research, how I could revise existing books. So I, I worked real hard on this proposal. I sent it to the, the powers that be at my company and they flatly refused. So I was like, all right, well, maybe this, you know, maybe this was just refused as a matter of course. They, like they looked at my vacation allotment and saw that I didn't have it and just like refused. So I, I appealed and I talked to my boss's boss and I talked to my boss's boss's boss and they were all like, no, we just, we can't spare you for those three weeks. So either you quit to go on this trip or you don't go on the trip and you keep your job. And I struggled with the decision and Kitty was you know, the, the devil on my shoulder being like, go the Grand Canyon, do the thing, do the thing you love. It's just a fucking job. Like you can, you can get another one. And I was like, no, I can't. Like I worked so hard to get where I am in my career. Like I'm sure I'll have another chance. And up to three days before my husband left on this trip without me, I battled with the decision. And in the end, I decided not to go. And a month later, they canned me anyway. So I gave up. I sacrificed literally the trip of a lifetime, something that was my passion 
and something I cared very deeply about on a personal level, I just, I gave it up for a single month of employment and I have never stopped kicking myself about that. And it like, in the end, like the, the people who denied my proposal to go on this three week trip, they are probably the same ones who, when it came time to lay people off, just crossed my name off a list. They, they didn't even make the connection probably. It was so impersonal. Yeah, you can love your company, but you're remiss if you think they're going to love you back. Exactly. Your your job is not your family. Your boss is not your friend. Full stop. And that was a lesson I really needed to learn. So, yeah. The term that comes up, which I think is an, uh, the wrong term, but it gets the idea across, is this idea of revisionist history. But it's not mm. revisionist in a bad way. And I, I, I do also see the connection between you know, relationships with people too. It's once you get out of them, you can actually see the bad things that were happening. You kind of revise Mm -hmm. your opinions. But in this case, I think in a very truthful, good way to say, ah, that wasn't good for me. But when I was in the midst of it. It's like an abusive relationship. And I don't, I don't at all want to demean the nature of abusive and violent relationships. Like that's a very, very serious issue. But at the same time, when you break up with someone, you can look back and see sort of the, like you said, the manipulative bad qualities of them that were kind of glossed over by the rose colored glasses you wore because you were so happy to be with them. And that was definitely the case with my job is I was so happy to have this prestigious gig and be working on these really great books that I'm so proud of even now that I, I kind of glossed over the like, oh, well, I ended up having to work evenings and I ended up, you know, fretting myself to sleep every night because I was so anxious about the work and I thought it was going to be worth it. I really thought it was going to be worth it to skip the Grand Fucking Canyon for my job. And it sounds so stupid now. What the fuck was I thinking? But there it is. There it is. I will never make that mistake again. (laughs) In the first half of the show, Piggy talked about some of the pain of losing her job. In the second half, we concentrate on what lessons she learned and how life is better now. But first... This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Wish you were in early on some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. 
Our crowd's investment professionals leverage their extensive network to review some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world. Their in-depth due diligence includes meeting with management teams and generally comprehensive vetting of deals they decide to make part of their own portfolio. Once Arcrod has selected a deal, they offer accredited investors the opportunity to invest alongside them with the same terms. If you're an accredited investor, you can join Arcrod for free at OURCROWD.com slash EAI and review the current deals. No payment is involved until you decide to participate in a deal. As you review deals, you have access to Arcrod's investor relations team, who you can talk to directly on the phone about your personal investment goals. The investment professionals at our crowd have already reviewed thousands of companies, invested hundreds of millions of dollars, closed investments in over 200 companies, and chosen dozens of companies that have made exits. Accredited investors can participate in single company deals for as little as $10,000 or one of our crowd's funds for as little as $50,000. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Memic. Memic explains that their tiny robotics allow surgeons to be less invasive and safely perform gynecologic surgeries so women heal faster and have less scarring. Memic's is a much-needed innovation in the rapidly growing multi-billion dollar robotic surgery market. You can get in early on Memic and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join rcrowd. The rcrowd account is free. Just go to ourcrowd.com slash EAI. Let's look at some of the positive sides of this. Mm -hmm. You have preached for years about reasonable personal finance, about emergency funds, about preparedness. Now you got to live that. Tell me a little bit about how it felt to lose a job and have the personal finance knowledge that you had. You were walking the walk, so to speak, not just talking the talk. Absolutely. Yeah. I am just like, if I could buy past me a drink, I totally would. That bitch had me all the way. So I, you know, I always tell our readers have multiple income streams, have a healthy emergency fund, and live modestly, live frugally. So that if the unimaginable happens, like losing a job, for example, or you know, not being able to work because of an injury or an illness or something, you will not be devastated. And my husband works for a nonprofit, so I'll I'll be very honest. You know, his his income is not enough to for me to just, you know, go be a trophy wife somewhere, like God willing, but no. So, you know, I had the six-month emergency fund saved up. I had the side business that I could ramp up immediately to cover my, cover my bills and, and maintain a healthy income. I had, you know, retirement savings, and I had the knowledge to apply for unemployment insurance if I needed it. And, you know, because I had an employed spouse with, again, a low-paying nonprofit job, I was able to get on his health insurance instead of having to do COBRA. So I had all these systems in place. I had this safety net that I had built myself that I didn't really take account, like I didn't really notice it until it was, until I needed it and it was there. You know, it was so nice to just not have to worry about money through this. There was like a minute of panic before I checked all my accounts and I was like, oh, bitch, you're set. You're great. So, you know, I, I can't stress enough how important it is to to everyone to build that system for yourself before you need it. And one of the the many things was again living very frugally. You know, my 
my favorite hobbies are reading and going for hikes and hanging out with my dog, all of which don't cost a lot of money. I am trying to buy all of my clothes secondhand. I don't go shopping for the sake of shopping. I buy delicious food that's mostly meat and vegetables. I grow my own vegetables. We raise chickens. So I have this lifestyle that is very sustainable. And even the discretionary spending that I did have before I lost my job, I was able to, you know, sort of look down my money tracker and eliminate those expenses. There was there was a couple months where I was just like, okay, well, I guess I'm just I'm just not going to go out to the bar for happy hour for a while. I'm just not going to do that. And of course, it really helps that there's a global plague on. So like I couldn't I couldn't go to concerts anyway even though I wanted to. So it was all sort of very nicely positioned in a way that like had I really thought about it before having to choose between work and the Grand Canyon, I probably would have realized, oh, I'm actually really set to to lose my job and, and to quit. But I didn't I didn't really frame it in that way at the time. So if if nothing else, I hope people take from my story that it's very worthwhile to have a second income stream, have a healthy emergency fund, and live a a frugal lifestyle within your means. It's notable that the only reason you had the emotional wherewithal to do all those healthy things like grieve and process and rock out to Alanis Morissette (laughs) was the fact that you financially had your house in order and therefore could take the time and energy you needed to do those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was like having having a life insurance policy for losing a a loved one. Again, I don't want to like my meta, my losing my job is so much less terrible than losing a spouse, but you know, that's that's the metaphor I'm going to go with is like I had I had created my own little life insurance policy there and that allowed me the space and the time to sort of not only go through the grieving process but really take my time to decide what I was going to do next. And I, you know, if I hadn't had all of that those sort of safety measures in place, I would have been much more desperate running around looking for a job in an, a market that is really desperate for job seekers right now. You know, the timing couldn't be worse for losing a job and needing a new one right now. I have a lot of pathos for the people who are who are going through this who don't have the safety net that I built for myself. So, you know, it having that safety net allowed me to make this process as healthy for myself as possible. And in the end, I think I'm better for it. It has given me the space to decide what I'm going to do next and be happy about that decision instead of sort of, you know, settling on a decision. I love the fact that you titled this blog post, I lost my job and it might be the best worst thing that has ever happened (laughs) to me. We've talked about the worst and we've Mm -hmm. touched on the best Tell me what the future looks like, specifically from an employment standpoint. And I'm using employment as a broad term, not as per se working for someone, but what you plan to do with your professional life, if you know. Sure. Yeah. Well, so it's been a really great time for me to focus on expanding the Bitches Get Riches media empire. Kitty and I have a lot of exciting plans coming up. We just launched season two of the podcast, which you can listen to wherever you find podcasts. And, you know, I have a lot of lengthy blog articles that I think will be really helpful for readers in 2020 and kind of the unique 
times that we're living in. So it's been really great to kind of throw myself into that passion project like that. But also as far as you know, my personal business goes, I've realized how much I enjoy being my own boss and how liberating that is. If I do want to fuck off to the Grand Canyon for three weeks, I can because I'm the one who makes that decision, nobody else. So I've ramped up my freelance business. I'm actually keeping extremely busy with that. So I have picked up a number of new clients and am subcontracting for a couple of other publishing houses, which is great. I'm actually... I don't know if I should say this, but I'm actually on track to make more money this year than I have ever before in my life. So that's pretty cool for losing a job. In addition to my freelance editorial work, I have started another business as a literary agent focusing on feminist nonfiction, which if you've ever read our blog, shouldn't be a surprise. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) not a surprise surprise at all, right? So I'm working with a number of clients to get them placed with the right publisher and negotiate their contracts with them, which really dovetails kind of perfectly with my professional experience so far. I was an acquiring editor at publishing houses and the acquiring editor and the literary agent sort of sit on opposite sides of the same table. So I'm, I'm just sort of taking those, those skills and that expertise that I gained over the last 12 years of my career and I'm using it to advocate for authors instead of publishing houses at this point, which is really very gratifying. And being my own boss means I get to choose my clients very carefully and I get to turn down work that I don't want and I get to negotiate on my own terms. So I'm feeling very much like a boss ass bitch, which is great. And while I am applying to other full-time jobs, I'm doing it in such a way that there's not a lot of pressure there. Like if I get an offer, it better be better than what I can do working for myself at this point. And if not, then I'm going to keep going with my, my, three side businesses, which are now my three main businesses, and just keep rocking it and loving it. I'm sensing a lot of optimism here. I'm thinking I might have to switch out my Alanis song because that's not really really working anymore. But it sounds like you're feeling that this unfortunate occurrence has landed you in a better place than you maybe would have been if, if you weren't fired. Yeah, exactly. It it kind of forced the issue in a way that I would not have done on my own. You know, for for a long time I did not think it was possible or practical for me to not work a full-time job. And to be fair, there are still some concerns. You know, it's really urgent for me to get off of my husband's health care and health insurance because it's not the best. And the not having a steady, predictable paycheck every month is scary. I mean, anyone who's ever worked an hourly job knows how that goes. But on this, at the same time, I I realized, you know, by mastering my own schedule and sort of calling the shots myself, I have increased my earning potential because I can do numerous side projects and I can focus on what's going to make the most financial sense in the moment. So yeah, I am feeling a lot of optimism. I don't think that cancels out my sad 90s breakup song moment. I still occasionally sing some Alanis, but I'm singing more I'm singing more Lizzo these days, a little uh, little Rihanna. So, you know, I'm 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 getting to the the happier songs, but I needed to go through that grieving process. I needed to go through that pain to get the clarity of where I am now and the optimism of where I am now. 
For those of us in our community who are facing a similar circumstance, did you do anything glaringly wrong? Like going back now, is there anything you would specifically change and say, okay, I didn't handle that one real well? It's tough because I, I did, I did try to save a lot of face and be the tough chick in leaving. I, you know, I sent this email out to my immediate team saying, okay, well, Friday is going to be my last, my last day. Happy trails to you until we meet again. And talked about how I was excited to, you know, build my, my personal business. And so I wasn't upfront with the people who didn't know the layoff situation. And I wish I had, if only to kind of warn them because I would never speak ill of a formal, former employer, but it was clear that the company wasn't managing the changing times well. And, you know, a month after I lost my job, the quarantine hit and it really, it fucked with the book business a lot, which is already not a thriving industry because of a company that rhymes with Amazon. <laughs> so... A month after I was laid off, almost everyone at the company was put on furlough. And I wish that I had been a little more upfront about the circumstances of my leaving and my termination to kind of warn the rest of my team that like, hey, you're not safe. Your job is not safe. Your your paycheck is not safe. Start editing your resume. So I guess, yeah, I guess that would be the, the biggest mistake. I do wish I had had a private conversation with my boss just to sort of go over the things that maybe put me on the chopping block. And I, I mean, I, I do think it was a little bit of, you know, last hired, first fired kind of thing because I was only there two years. But I, I wish that I had been able to sort of approach him and be like, hey, what what could I have done differently? Or, you know, where where did things go wrong? You know, I really connect with what you said about telling your fellow employees for a whole different reason, a tangential story. The other day I did an episode, a panel episode with some people I really, really respected and the episode was great. And as I was getting to my conclusion and the finish of the podcast, I looked up and I wasn't recording. (gasps) Oh my God. I've recorded over like 150, 200 episodes and that's never happened before. You're recording this, right? (laughs) I am recording this. (laughs) And I finished up and didn't say anything. And so then I'm sitting there contemplating, how am I going to tell these people that this is not going to come out? And my first instinct was come up with some vague excuse that makes it sound less like your fault. Like there was a technical glitch, something went wrong. And I'm at this point in life and maybe it's because I've stepped away from some of the things I did as a profession. I've decided I'm not going to feel shame about things like that anymore. Mm -hmm. So I kind of just said, you know what? I screwed it up. And I feel like a connection probably between what you were working at work too is at some point you just got to be like, you know what? I got fired. It is what it is. It's almost more helpful and more beneficial and more real just to say how it is as opposed to trying to make up an excuse or trying to avoid reality for whatever reason. So I connect with what you were saying about that being something you learned. And I think that's a great lesson. Yeah, absolutely. No, you, you used the word shame. And I think that's that's a very important word to use because there there was a lot of that, you know, the, the shame of losing my identity, of losing my profession. And my spouse was incredible in that like he I mean he really was very emotionally supportive but on top of that like he came up with this whole theory 
of exactly what went wrong. And I was like, no, 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 it's, it's not that way at all. And then I realized, oh my God, he's right. And it's okay for me to be kind of, uh, I don't have to be ashamed of that. You know, I, I can ad- admit, you know, the things I did wrong, the things the company did wrong and, and what could have gone better. And his theory was, I, th- I think, absolutely correct. I just wasn't ready to hear it at first. I just wanted to kind of wallow in my own shame and my own lack of self-confidence at first and sing the Alanis Morissette and, <laughs> and just like go through the bad breakup. Yeah. yeah leave me alone to die. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. I needed, I needed that experience, but in going through those stages of grief again, but once I got over it, I was able to be like, you know what? It's fine. Everything's going to be fine. And I've kept in touch with some friends from the company, the, the ones who, who got furloughed, who were like, oh my God, I'm so scared. What do I do? And I just, I feel bad for them, but I'm also like, a little glad that I got out ahead of the ahead of the rats leaving the sinking ship, so to speak. <laughs> so this started as a financial independence podcast, but really we've broadened out to general personal finance and personal interest for that matter. But I still have to ask, financial independence is still something we all think about. Long term, how do you think the losing your job is going to affect your financial independence trajectory? I think it's going to neg- negatively affect it, even though I am set to make more money this year than ever before in my life. I have more expenses. I'm covering insurance, as I've said. I don't have that steady income stream. I don't have that employer-matched 401k anymore. So I, I do think it's going to slow it down. But I'm okay with that. I'm prepared for that. And right now, a lot of what I'm doing is looking at different strategies for maximizing income and investing dividends. So for example, you know, the the market has been really volatile right now. I have not changed the amount of money that I'm putting into savings and investments every month. It was very important to me that despite losing that biweekly paycheck, I not change those levels. And I I'm proud to say I'm I'm maintaining those those financial levels. I have this money that is extra that I don't know what to do with yet. So I've been, you know, really strategizing how best to use that money to get me back on track for financial independence sooner rather than later. So one of the things I did, my husband and I, we have a mortgage. And while I paid off my student loans five years ago now, six years, six years ago, while I paid off my student loans six years ago, he started with a lot more than me and he still had some student loans and he's, he's been very, committed to independently paying those off himself. But I had this money just sitting there wasting away in a high interest savings account. And I was like, I think this money would be best spent on your 11.8% interest student loan. So I paid off the last of his student loans, which means that it has freed up more of his income to go to supporting us both. And I'm now considering, you know, starting a CD ladder, which is something I've always wanted to try. I mean, this is such a money nerd thing. I'm like, ooh, a CD ladder. <laughs> um, <laughs> but just just looking into other ways that I can make my money work for me. And again, you know, building a whole new business on top of the two I already have, it comes with some expenses, but the rewards, I mean, the rewards are incredible and they're they're not just financial, of course. Well, Piggy, I wanted to thank you for coming on and talking about this somewhat difficult situation. One of the brave things about having a platform is when you're willing to 
show your own vulnerability, fear, and even shame to help people and to broaden the conversation. And when you can do that with humor and as poignantly as you generally do, I think we all get better and we all get stronger. So thank you for being on the show and tell us where can we find you if we are looking to have more of these conversations on the internet or want to listen to your podcast. Thank you so much, Doc. That was so nice. If people want to engage with Kitty and I, they should go to bitchesgetriches.com. That's our main site. And there you can find links to our podcast, which is the Bitches Get Riches podcast. You can also find links to our social media. We're on Twitter at Bitches Get Rich. We couldn't afford the ES yet. <laughs> you can find us on Tumblr. It's bitchesgetriches.tumblr.com. You can find me on Instagram at BGR piggy and you can find kitty on instagram at bgr kitty come hang out with us come come chat we we love reader questions in fact our podcast is all question and answer based so if you send us a question we might just answer it on the air and wouldn't that be fun it indeed would be (laughs) this has been the earn and invest podcast on behalf of myself doc g i wanted to thank piggy from bitches get riches that's a wrap Doctors don't get fired. No, really. Doctors generally don't get fired. We don't lose our jobs. It's one of the most stable professions out there. Yes, of course, you might work for a company. You might work for a big practice. But assuming you don't do something egregious, your job is safe. On the other hand, you might also work for yourself, which means that you make the rules. You run the practice, you pay the bills, you are your own boss. So doctors generally don't get fired. Yes, it is true that sometimes patients decide to leave us. In a sense, on an individual level, our patient, our client can leave us. But generally, we have an amazing amount of job stability. So I can't say that I completely understand what Piggy is going through when she talks about what it's like to lose a job. In fact, I've been lucky enough to never really be fired. Well, or maybe that's not exactly true. In my years as an internal medicine physician, I took on many jobs as a medical director for nursing homes. So what happens is nursing homes are required by the state of Illinois to have a physician that oversees the procedures of the nursing home and is available in case one of the doctors for the nursing home patient isn't available. So throughout my career, I've taken on these medical directorship roles and It's always an interesting mix of circumstances that gets someone hired as a medical director of the nursing home. First and foremost, you have to be a good physician, a physician who cares for their patients, who will show up, who can sit on administrative committees, those kind of basic things. But there's also the other consideration. Nursing homes like to hire doctors as medical directors because they work in the community and they're well-respected, and they hope by having that doctor that either that doctor themselves or the doctor's partners or the community in general will send more patients to that nursing home. 
So you have this funny situation where the nursing homes want the best doctor, but they also want a doctor who will improve their bottom line, who will cause other doctors to send patients to that nursing home. Therefore, it is not uncommon for medical directorships to change from month to month or year to year. A nursing home will hire a medical director, keep them on for six months, look at the average daily census, decide whether they're helping bring in patients or not, and then fire them if they think they can do better elsewhere. So I took on a bunch of jobs as a medical director, and lo and behold... I got fired from some of them. And this had never happened to me because, like I said, I had always either run my own practice or been in an incredibly stable job. And I remember the first time being called in to the administrator's office, this administrator that I had joked with. We had a great relationship. And she sat me down and said, I'm sorry, you can no longer be a medical director here. We're not going to pay you your stipend anymore. You don't have to go to these meetings. You can still see patients in the facility, but we're hiring Dr. X instead. And I had known Dr. X. Dr. X was not particularly the best physician in the world, but they had a huge patient population and lots of partners. And the administrator flat out told me that they thought that the bottom line would be better served by having Dr. X as their medical director. And it was funny because this was my first experience with this letdown of feeling like you're not good enough, of feeling like even though you tried your best, it wasn't up to par. Funny enough, after that experience, I had a little bit of trepidation. Every time I was working as a medical director at a nursing home, I would fear when the administrator would call me into the office, something that in the past I had enjoyed because I knew that we would have a conversation about some patient care issue or another, some administrative issue or another. Now when I got that note to go knock on the administrator's door, immediately I had that panic that I was going to be fired. And indeed, sometimes I was, and often I wasn't. But dealing with this rejection at least professionally, for the first time, taught me a lot. One of the things it taught me is often there are circumstances out there that are beyond your control. I was sometimes being fired not because I wasn't a good physician, not because I wasn't a good administrator, but because the economics of the nursing home had changed and they were trying to throw out a lifeline and bring in more business. The other thing I learned is that you really can't rely on anyone else for your well-being. You see, especially in the beginning, I had really relied on that extra income. And when all of a sudden it wasn't coming in, I felt a little bit of panic. And after going through this once or twice, I realized that I needed to set my financial life straight such that I didn't have to rely on some employer having the grace to keep me on. And I think this really comes out in Piggy's story. She would have been lost if she hadn't been financially savvy. She would have been lost if she hadn't been interested in financial independence. This idea that she was covering her bases, that she was having side hustles, that she had a reasonable emergency fund, that she had a plan if she lost her job, 
took how upsetting it was being let go and allowed her to grieve safely and gave her the time and the emotional energy to then move on. And I certainly took that from my story and take it from hers also. Look, you can't control what some employer is going to do. You can't control circumstance. None of us knew this pandemic and recession were going to come. These are all things out of our locus of control. So why not focus on what is in your control? You can build up your talent stack. You can build up your side revenues and side hustles. You can make sure that you have not only a plan A, but a plan B, C, and D. You can make sure that whatever happens to the best of your abilities that you are mitigating all the risk we face as human beings. Because believe it or not, no matter how smart you are, you were not clairvoyant. I couldn't have foreseen in the beginning that one of these nursing homes would fire me. Piggy couldn't have foreseen that this career she had so much pride in would come to an end more quickly than she thought. But you better bet that we could have planned for it. And maybe that's part of the knowledge we're trying to gain here at Earn and Invest. This ability to pivot, this ability to mitigate risk, this ability to protect yourself from the unknown is what these conversations are all about. Because the real goal of our money is not some net worth. It's not even financial independence. It's safety and security so that we can pursue our other dreams and interests. And you can't pursue your dreams and interests if you're always worried about the other shoe dropping, if you're always worried about some employer deciding they don't need you anymore. Take it or leave it. Your job might not be that into you. But what we learned today is probably if you plan correctly and carefully, it just doesn't matter. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. That was fun. No, that was... Go ahead. You asked some great questions. I was not sure where that was going to go, but it was... um, No, that was was a little like therapy. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that before. I um, When I read people's content, I really try to decide or think about who they are and where they're coming from. And so... People like you make it easy, right? Because you put good stuff out there that's very thought-provoking. And I could, I felt like I could see some of the turmoil and understand where you were coming from and see the lessons you were pulling out of this somewhat traumatic situation. And I do like the fact that I wouldn't say it's off-brand for you, but it was a deepening of your brand in that sense. It was showing a little bit of a, a more vulnerable side. Not that you haven't done that before, but it was a hard, I mean, it, those are, they're brave conversations and they're difficult. Thank you. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I, I definitely feel like, you know, we, we have one style for the blog and every once in a while we like, we kind of take away the mask and really get down deep into the emotional stuff. And 
while it's hard to write, those have always been kind of our most popular articles. Um, So stay tuned for more of those. I mean, I think we'll we'll do them very periodically to sort of still pack that punch. Um, But I know, you know, Kitty paid off her mortgage yesterday. Um, So she'll be writing a lot about how that feels. I know she's kind of on cloud nine right now and feeling very sort of grateful to the universe. Um, But, you know, keep, keep your eyes peeled for more of that stuff. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.